2: Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 22.5, Talk, The Dutch Revolt. Sean and I finally sat down together for what was perhaps a bit of a rambling talk episode, but certainly I think an enjoyable one as well. We delved into the finer points of some of the things I kind of glossed over in the main episode, so I hope you'll enjoy it. Please let me know what you think through the usual channels. The next voices you hear will be mine and Sean's. Thanks and enjoy. Back on the podcast and my guest as always is Sean.
3: Say hello Sean. Hello. And how are we doing today? I'm, I'm pretty good. It's a lovely Irish sunny day. Looking out under the sun. Yes, yeah, so if you get any disturbing background noise, that's probably just because we're downstairs in the in the extension cell. Yeah, we decided it was a it was a downstairs kind of day. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to stand upstairs in the sun, you know, it's we want to be in the cooler extension. Yeah, much better. So, we have a good bit of content to get through today, I yeah, think. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one, because this is, this is one that's close to me, but not that close to me, as mm-hmm. in, I, I kind of know about it, and now I know a lot more after listening to that podcast. Yeah, so, uh, oh good. Well, what did you think of the podcast as a whole? Uh, I think it was good. Well presented. Uh, it went into tons of detail uh, running mm-hmm. up to it. Uh, yeah, it was nice. You got through the actual boring revolt part really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> do you
2: feel, do you feel like I like when I was doing it? I was I was thinking to myself: Is this kind of
3: background detail really necessary? No, absolutely. Like how how does Spain? control the Netherlands. And yeah. How does the Netherlands even become a sovereign nation? You sort of... Yeah. Like, when you grow up as a kid there, you're just like, yeah, the Netherlands just exists because we've always existed. Mm. But uh, it's it's really interesting to find out its origins. It's yeah. not it's not like in Ireland where it's like, well, we all lived on this island and you're a foreigner. Mm. It's like you lived in a corner of a giant continent. How yeah. do you claim any <laughs> sort of, you know, yeah. this is ours or what, what, what sort of national... You know, unity is there. Mm, so yeah. it's interesting to see how it all came mm. about. We will. We'll definitely talk about this a bit more later. But I think
2: even just now, I was amazed researching this episode just how much royal marriage has affected the history of Europe. It's oh, incredible.
3: No. And that, it was very funny. Uh, when he, he texted me because he was like, oh, hey, Sean, what books do you know about, like, uh, Dutch history? And I was like, I have this uh, comic book called uh, Von Nil Tot and it just means from then till now and it's just like literally comic strips of Dutch history <laughs> and like because I didn't understand like because like, I couldn't I can't read Dutch I left the Dutch education system before they taught me how to read so I I, I look at the pictures but I have no idea mm-hmm. what is going on yeah. it's like all these pictures of wars and fighting and mm-hmm. the Spanish and the British and I'm like I don't know what's going
2: on <laughs> well before we go any further I think we should establish exactly why you're so especially interested in this episode and why you're so interested Interested in Dutch history in general? If if our listeners have heard of the Napoleonic special I did and episode ten point five in particular, which was a talk episode in which we went into kind of the history of your family, actually, yeah,
3: just a little bit, yeah.
2: But I don't think we talked too much about why you have a special interest in Dutch history.
3: Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I've alluded to it, but I was born in Delft, so we were they were living there, and then I was born there, and so mm. were all my siblings. So mm. you know, we've, we've got this. Uh, you know, it's interesting to look into because at times Irish history is just so bland. <laughs> so you we have, yeah. rose up in rebellion and we failed. We yeah. rose up in rebellion and we failed. Oh, we're getting oppressed. <laughs> the Dutch are just like, bam, revolt, yeah. we win. Yeah. Now we're going to go conquer the world and we're going to be awesome and people are going to remember us forever we're going to have our own king and yeah. people are going to be like, oh, these guys are revolutionary in the way we're thinking. Mm. Ireland's like... We're still catching up now. No, it's just. Yeah,
2: no, no it, it's it must be great as a Dutch citizen, as an Irish citizen as well. I'm not too happy about the way Irish history panned out, but as a Dutch citizen, at the same time, I can also be happy that yes, we did pretty damn well for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. of course,
3: it's it's great. It's great mm. to have a second history to fall back on. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay, so I mean. Patriotic ramblings aside, I think we should get down to what has always been the start part of
3: this podcast, which of course is B-Fit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, B is for blog, if you are actually using it. Do you use the blog?
2: Yeah, I do use the blog. I mean, the donate buttons? Well, not just for that. I mean, okay. I've, I've okay. started to put bibliographies in. And, okay, great. And for the two episodes that I've released already, I mean, I'm hoping to continue this trend. But for the moment I have it that, I will put in a kind of snippet about some way of the podcast, like something to do with it anyway. I'll just put in like an interesting note about it. And then once I've done the podcast, then I'll put the bibliography in. But I like that. I like the way that I use it because I think it encourages people to look. I mean, I haven't had anyone really saying, I never really had anyone saying, I don't trust your podcast because I don't know what sources you're using. (laughs) So, I mean.
3: I think there was that one guy.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Professor Twomley. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) E is for... E is for email. WDFpodcasts at Hotmail.com I've been getting a good few emails, actually. As
3: if there wasn't enough way to contact him. Yeah, I know.
2: Contacts. Contact. Contact. There you go. There you go, yeah. I was pluralizing for no reason. Master of the English language, Sean O'Regan's. Sean O'Regan's. Shana Regans, yeah. yeah, see what I did there? Yeah, I see what
3: you did. <laughs> okay. no, leave me alone, I'm Dutch and Irish. I shouldn't be speaking English by any right.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, <laughs> I've been getting a good few emails that are um, quite interesting because it shows what you, what you guys want me to cover. And I'm not going to say one of them was about the 30 Years War, but... It may have been about the 30 Years War and they may have asked me to cover it at some point in the future and I may have said that I will cover it at some point in the future. You heard it here first, so surprise if you didn't see that coming already because why else would I cover this era if I wasn't going to conclude with the historical nerdgasm of the 30 years war I mean why else would I do this okay
3: I s- still have no idea what happened <laughs> in the 30 years war it's well all will be revealed in one of those blank points in history yeah bro.
2: all will be revealed in due time it's a, it's a really really interesting period of history mm-hmm. so wdfpodcast.hotmail.com is the oh. email address so i is for iTunes well,
3: what was that? f for Facebook
2: I don't know why I forgot F for
3: Facebook. I should not be. (laughs) F is for your most popular method of interaction. Yes,
2: Uh, Facebook, which really is, I think this has advanced my podcast in more ways than I really realize, because this is where people go for all the news and updates, and whenever the podcast is released, this is where they find out, unless you're constantly checking refresh in iTunes. Or in your podcast source feed, which would just be miserable to live like that. So it's great to have Facebook so that you can find out when the podcast is released. And also you can go on the Facebook uh, group, History Podcasts.
3: And which just interact with everyone. Interact
2: with everyone and interact with the podcasters as well. We're very approachable. We won't patronize you or look down on you.
3: I is for... I too. <laughs> where you can do what, Sean? Uh, Rate. Right review and subscribe yes and, and you, um, you can do that on every single international site as well that would be awesome yes that would be good like
2: it just pretend you're from different countries yeah, exactly. and leave me a different review in and every download single download
3: it in different countries as well yeah like, if you can do that that would be great cool Thanks. download it twice if you're on a flight from America mm. to to the Ireland or something mm. download it once in America mm. and then when you get here download it again cause, yeah, yeah do that Please. Review us twice I,
2: I check all the reviews That I get Trust me Like I spend my days Checking all the different Like checking whether People have gotten In contact with me Through BeFit, And one of them Is through iTunes So mm-hmm. don't think yeah, I don't does, see He does
3: check it so. Oh I do And like he, he'll he show me Like I check it There's something. Yeah, isn't it great Oh he gets really excited Yeah so. well
2: of course I do I mean yeah. we have come A long way on iTunes uh, If you think about Like the very first review That we got Now we're at 111 reviews On That's the American really iTunes good. store and nearly up to 60 on the British iTunes store. So, that's pretty impressive. And you Australian listeners and you New Zealand listeners also did pretty well as well. And Canadian ones as well, like in the 20s. So, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Irish listeners, tut, tut, tut. <sighs> Only 14. Yeah, but then again, there's so few of us. I know, but two of those reviews are like, well, one of them's me and one of them's my sister's. <laughs> and you know that review my sister did? I actually did that through her account. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Low. I know. So Uh,
3: okay, what's the next one? Uh. (laughs) Quickly change the subject.
2: T T is for
3: tell anybody.
2: Tell anybody, which has moved on from tell a friend, from tell somebody to tell anybody. Just because, in case you get confused, like you literally can tell anyone at all. Yeah, they don't even have to have an interest in history anymore. seriously,
3: public transport ambush people. You gotta listen to this podcast. Seriously, it'll change your life. You know, exaggerate. You don't have to exaggerate that much, but do exaggerate. Like, just tell them, like, it's, it's, uh, if it was, like, compared to a, a biblical scripture, you know, it's like the new, the new Bible, which is probably offensive to everybody, so I'll take it back. <laughs> <laughs> we don't exaggerate, though. We embellish facts. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so
2: if you have done BeFit or parts of it or even thinking of doing parts of it or all of it, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah, because you mean a lot to us. It really does make a difference, guys. And I do see the efforts that you're doing. Because this podcast is free, I do depend on the generosity of others. And whether that generosity includes monetary or just moral support, I really, really appreciate it. So thanks very
3: much. High five. High 5 leave that it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: When you think of the Dutch Revolt, Sean, what's the first thing you think of?
3: William of Orange. William yes. of Orange is the first thing I think of when I think mm-hmm. of Dutch Revolt. Yes. I, I happened to look across it. I remember I told you, like, in, in fifth year, mm. cause I, or fourth year, because I was doing a project about the Netherlands, but I was a lazy fourth year, so I didn't actually do anything. Mm. Uh, but I was like, did you know the Netherlands belonged to Spain? And you were like, no. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that happened, and,
2: William of Orange is really an essential figure in Dutch mm. history. I mean, he's he's. I mean, he begins the lineage. He really does. Williams.
3: Yeah. Uh, when well, Will, 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 William, sorry, Willemina's. Yes,
2: Wilhelmina's. Just because they can't have like a William when well, there's a woman they'd born, so they the have to change anthem. it. Yeah, they like, do. If
3: they did, oh, hey Frederick, the oh, <laughs> that doesn't do... really work, <laughs> Frederick. Like they even <laughs> called, they
2: even called like they had a Frederick and it was like. Oh, whoops, didn't mean to call him Frederick, so they added William after his
3: name. <laughs> Frederick William, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah still name. William, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> Like uh, the current king, Alexander William.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's an example of it right there. They love the name William, but I mean, why not? I mean, William of Orange did do an awful lot. And we can see, let's let's trace him right now. I mean, since, since he rose to prominence really in 1566 as a kind of major figure... ...of really Dutch nobility in the Spanish-owned Netherlands. Even though William of Orange went on to become this grand Dutch figure... ...who resembled Dutch sovereignty and who resembled Dutch independence... ...it wasn't always that way. I I think it's really shown in the 1570s, the early 1570s... ...what pushed William over the edge and what led him to become this great Dutch figure was the incredible spanish miscalculation would you
3: say greatness was thrusted upon him
2: i i would almost the, say that but i would almost say the circumstances of the time compelled him mm, to act in the way that he acted
3: yeah. and would you say that was a uh, sort of uh some sort of compassion for the lower classes and then he felt mm. compelled to stand up for what was yeah. right and just and what the general feeling of the yeah. population was well i would say or would that you say he mm. was just you know one of these power hungry. I'm going to do this. And well, yeah. I mean,
2: you might out. you might remember there was there was a good bit of of the of those two factors. I mean, obviously he wanted power because mm. he was ambitious, but he also understood that what the Spanish were doing in the Netherlands mm. was completely against the Dutch way of doing things. Yeah. I mean, a I Dutchman
3: that understood Dutchmen. Yeah. So.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, I didn't emphasise this enough in the episode, but what it came down to was a clash of cultures between mm. the Spanish who believed in absolute monarchy and the Dutch who believed in liberal principles of freedom. There, There's so much different between the two countries that it almost seems inevitable that by the Spanish ruling the Dutch, the Dutch would rebel. The comparison that I drew between the Netherlands and Venice, I think, is an interesting one because they're so similar in so many ways. And as a side note, I think if Venice was to become if Venice never became part of a United Italy and it remained independent, it would be, I think, something like the Dutch became in that it created
3: its own overseas empire. Would it have been more successful than the Italians in making an overseas Well, I don't empire? know.
2: I mean, let's go even further in this comparison. Let's say, in this metaphor, let's say that the Netherlands is Venice, okay? So mm-hmm. let's say United Italy is United Germany. Right. Compare what United Germany did to what United Italy did. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, yeah. look at that. I mean the Italians tried to make an empire, and it didn't work out so well. The it was Germans
3: did as well and yeah. it wasn't really big yeah i mean they they achieved something and mm-hmm. it just wasn't on the same sort of uh epic scale that you had uh, the successful nations like France and Britain doing sure yeah um. But I, I that's a really good comparison. Mm. And I'm yeah, absolutely. And it's the smaller nations that mm. are able to get away with just trading, yeah. And picking up small little colonies mm. everywhere without yeah. really stepping on mm. other countries' kingdoms yeah. right, or or empires. Because if you look at the
2: Dutch Empire and this is this is like obviously jumping far ahead because this comes as a result of the Dutch Golden Age, which happens from about sixteen forty eight onwards mm-hmm. when the Netherlands is officially recognised as independent their empire is almost like an empire of trading posts, with the exception of perhaps Indonesia, because they own the vast majority and, uh, of Indonesia. What about
3: the Boers as well? Just, just. Oh, in
2: size. South Africa, yeah. Well, I mean, that Cape Colony, it can be seen as a kind of linking between, uh, for the same purpose, really, that that Britain used South Africa for, mm. as kind of the purpose of security and for the purpose of naval trade and for securing all their ridiculous numbers of trade networks across the world. I mean, they generally would have to pass through South Africa, especially before the Suez canal existed. Mm. And you could shortcut through Egypt in that way. I mean, it was essential to have these trading posts, just like, uh, again, back to this comparison, just like Venice had a series of trading posts across the Mediterranean that would lead you all the way back to Venice. Their, their empire would consist of Mm. harbors and small enclaves, not necessarily land, in great amounts of numbers, but certainly trading posts that would have been important enough to secure all their trade routes that the Dutch and the Venetians found so important.
3: Yeah, they, they were really wealthy nations. Oh yeah,
2: I mean, and it goes back so far. I mean, you find with these countries that trade and liberty kind of go hand in hand and the yeah. liberal principles that the Dutch and the Venetians had and that held they held close to heart were so important because those principles encouraged trade and they encouraged commerce Mm. and they made them as profitable as they could be because by not restricting anything in commerce or in economics, they were able to advance their countries more Mm. and become major players. Like Venice is tiny, but it became one of the greatest economies and owned one of the greatest navies in the world in the 15th century, which we saw in the last episode with the War of the League of Cambrai. And that was huge. It's hugely significant that a country that size could do that, just like the Dutch did. From 1650 to 1700, they were the prime economic power in the world because of what they had established.
3: Now, would you say that some of the uh, Dutch influences would have influenced the uh, British settlers in the Americas into this sort of liberal trading mindset? Into the point where, when taxes were implemented by mm. the British who were so far away, yeah. that they instantaneously did exactly what the Dutch did and became <laughs> this revolutionary state.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good because question. It, it is comparable, yeah, it is, of course. And it, it, the taxation issue is always going to be an issue for countries that are far away from their foreign master, and like that's inevitable. So, I, I think that may it may be traceable. That kind of that kind of idea that that because of the Dutch ancestry there that they could be connected. But I think at the end of the day, you don't want to be taxed that heavily when you're so far away and you can't even Yeah,
3: like even the Irish are complaining about taxation. Of course,
2: yeah. And we're so complacent as it is (laughs) for us to complain there must be something going on. By fifteen seventy, okay, the Mm -hmm. Dutch Revolt was like petering out basically because William of Orange had lost his major support base and he had lost important battles. He was on the run. He wasn't even in the Netherlands. Well, he was in the Netherlands, but he certainly wasn't seen by the Spanish as the kind of dangerous force that he would go on to be mm. and that would unite the Netherlands, at least for a time, against Spanish rule. So I was very interested to see how that whole situation was turned around. And by and large, it was turned around by Spanish mismanagement. Just like, as we, we just touched on there... Just like the American Revolution would be sparked by the issue of taxation and mismanagement. I mean, empires seem to lose their empires by mismanagement more than they do by actual military defeats, in my point of view. I mean, obviously, people are going to pull up major examples of them losing in military defeats. But the ones that stand out in history are grand miscalculations that empires make
3: with their overseas domains. Even even with the Republic of Ireland, I mean, yeah. the, the execution of the yeah. Patriots. That's I a mean, great that example, was, yeah. like that. If that was managed just slightly differently, mm-hmm. th- th- you would have had a pacified Ireland and you would have had Home Rule. The Dutch nowadays wouldn't necessarily
2: see themselves as a country that suddenly emerged from the Dutch Revolt. Mm. Just because during the early medieval era, The Netherlands, that region was so important economically to the rest of Europe, even while it remained kind of independent, at least independent enough to not be able to say, okay, all of the Netherlands are ruled over by a single master. Hmm. This fact changes in the 1549 pragmatic sanction where Charles V, who ruled over the Holy Roman Empire and Spain and the Netherlands, decided to kind of cement the Netherlands as the Netherlands rather than... Holland, Zealand, etc, etc, etc He wanted to kind of centralise that area So that it was easier to rule And more profitable to rule as well So, And it also meant that The Netherlands would remain a united body At least in law And they couldn't be separated by marriage Or separated by conquest mm. or diplomacy From then on the Netherlands would be A united region Rather than A completely distinct group Of provinces Even though that's what they were like the Netherlands saw themselves as culturally diverse and certainly they didn't see themselves as a country called the Netherlands yeah. by the time the revolt started mm. in the Northern Netherlands at least they all wanted to be free of Spanish rule so that was the only real thing they had in common and mm. that went
3: on to really unify their cause but well <laughs> it's interesting to see where the origins of the Dutch came from because you know the way that Franks who moved through mm. Took out the Celts mm. They became France Yeah Who Who occupied Like who Where do they come from Yeah Who are
2: these people Exactly Yeah no that's 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 a good question to ask I And mean, it's not one I can answer Because it goes Through a period of history That I didn't actually Really look I, at I
3: bet it's in Von Null Tot Null, And it's one of these Comic strips And I, I just looked at it And I didn't understand It probably
2: is yeah. But just like the story Of the Franks Where they were a German tribe Originally and they settled In what was then Gaul I mean, I'm sure there's a similar story with the Dutch. They just like there's a similar story with Venice. To keep using this metaphor,
3: they you really love Venice. Don't you?
2: I really, do, I just love the idea of it that mm. these two nations are so similar, and that it proves the idea that trading nations are generally more liberal in their principles. Just like the Venetians had to clear up their land and drain the areas around to make it more secure and make it more livable, the Dutch had to do the same thing with their dikes and their land drainage. So in that, it's kind of the same idea. I think. I mean. They are very comparable. Now, you may be wondering what the point of that whole comparison is, and I I don't really think there is one. I just like the idea. Yeah, that's a really nice comparison. These guys are similar. Yeah. Um, What's the point of comparing them? Well, just that you find a comparison.
3: Yeah. (laughs) That's that's really all that there uh, is. The Dutch have one of the most amazing party tricks in stopping an enemy from advancing. Oh, yeah, they really do. It's like, ah, that's a nice army you got. You bring boats... (laughs) I hope you did yeah oh Oh, there you go lots of water everywhere yeah it's it's really it's it's brilliant
2: and we'll see so much of this over the coming years when the going gets tough
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: The ground gets wet, basically. Yeah, like, yeah. And I don't know, there were diseases there as well. Like, uh, there was um, malaria. Oh, the of Dutch course, malaria yeah. As well. mm.
2: uh, like, a huge part of the Dutch strategy was to defend their land's to the end, and in order to do that, they pulled out all the stops by... <laughs>
3: <laughs> pulled out all the stops, I get it, because the stoppers let in the water, get it. That's, that was a
2: completely like pun. That accidental is an awful pun. pun. Awful yeah, pun. I didn't even do it on purpose because it was they, so bad, I promise. Yeah. What, what, what we see with the Dutch strategy there is a good example... It's like
3: burnt ground, except without actually burning any ground. Yeah, it's like you're scorched just, earth policy, yeah. yeah. You're, you're refusing to allow your opponent to take any mm. advantage from from the land
2: and this that, that that really gives you an idea of the kind of war that the Dutch would come to fight against the Spanish and it gives you an idea as well of why the Spanish found it so hard to fight against the Dutch because it created a kind of stalemate in the late 1570s
3: always having malaria walking in wet ground all the time <laughs> yeah. bogs and not being able to cross having to make Bridges, which means getting trees. and mm. you're in a bog, how many trees are in bogs? And the trees. Spanish
2: had to invest so much resources into fighting the Dutch. And they're already fighting the Ottomans. They're already I mean, fighting the Ottomans. They're struggling against France as well. I mean, England doesn't look too good. All their overseas possessions are being raided by pirates. They're very, very, very stretched. And mm. the Dutch were supposed to be footing this bill, but instead they were causing more expenses because they were revolting. So the Spanish really were in big trouble at this time. So they had to win this war, but they just couldn't be- because the Dutch were fighting so tooth and nail, and they yeah. just were not giving up. They weren't giving ground either, not at all. They were making them fight for every bit of land that they could get their hands on. So it wasn't a war that the Spanish could continue. And this is especially this is especially true once we see the English involvement, which is which is something I kind of jumped ahead to. Okay, so the 1580s then are a defining period of Dutch history because a lot of things happened during this time. For one, William of Orange is assassinated in 1584, but even before then you have a really interesting series of events with the brother of the French king, Francis, being invited in by William of Orange... To kind of rule over the Netherlands as a monarch. Oh, Why do you think he did that, Sean? Why do you think he
3: invited the French king's brother into the country? I mean, it's representation. uh, It's like gaining official recognition almost instantly. Because if they are already recognised by aligning yourself with them and and having them as your figurehead, it means that you are definitely no longer associated with the Spanish in any sort of Of way. Of course, yeah. It means the Spanish have to... Revoke their claim Yeah So yeah it, it makes sense
2: It does make sense Like it's a kind of two It's a one two punch I mean You get the royal legitimacy Of a kind of Strong French line Of royalty Which would come with Adopting the brother of Francis King As your monarch But you also get the resources That he brings bring with him To help you Revolt mm-hmm. fully Against the Spanish And this is key I mean this is This is a This is a fact of history Is that the Dutch Did not genuinely believe at least not all of them, that they could successfully continue this revolt that had begun and they could not uphold their Republic alone. They didn't necessarily want a foreign monarch, especially Holland and Zealand. But Willem van Orange, who was the leader of the revolt, genuinely believed that the Dutch revolt would not be successful unless it had a kind of foreign protector. Yeah. And once this this agreement with France has completely died and failed miserably because of Francis's erroneous decision to try and seize Antwerp by force, which turned everyone against him.
3: Now, uh, at that time, uh, what was the considered capital of the Netherlands? Well, you see, that's... Was the, it Amsterdam? Was it The Hague? Or mm,
2: that's the thing. Would it be
3: Antwerp and one of the biggest ports? It's it's huge on the map, and Yeah, it now belongs to Brussels, which is odd, but...
2: Yeah, Amsterdam and... and Amsterdam and The Hague are, are very different in their makeup because The Hague would have been more Protestant, whereas Amsterdam would have been far more Catholic. Right, and so because culturally of, it would have been... Uh, yeah, culturally, uh, divided yeah.
3: ...divided in terms of... They, it wouldn't be a, a great housing... What about And Would that have been a...
2: Antwerp would have been very, very central to the Dutch Revolt because it was so financially important to the Netherlands as a whole. Mm. So as a representation of the Dutch Revolt, it was key. But it wasn't necessarily the capital of the Dutch Revolt. Right. Because there was so much important cities within Holland
3: and Zealand. Yeah. But as a point, the French brothers king chose Antwerpen of all the Dutch cities to take. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And if you're going for shock and awe, we have just taken your biggest city, it would appear that Antwerpen was the capital. Of
2: course, yeah. But even then, even in Francis's idea to take the biggest, most financially important city of the Netherlands, he completely miscalculated because the Spanish had done the same thing. The Spanish had sacked Antwerpen in 1576 and it hadn't stopped the Dutch revolt. So I'm not exactly sure what Francis hoped to achieve by seizing this city did he think that the Dutch were suddenly going to say okay you're our monarch now we'll obey you and we won't try to revolt or try to question your your legitimacy as our king no not at all they would have just said oh you took Antwerp that's interesting Come and get us here behind our flooded lands. Like, bring it on, Francis. I, I, I just I just don't see the sense Francis had in trying to seize this city because it turned the entirety she of is, the Dutch against him.
3: He is a, a, a French war leader and not a good one. <laughs> we, we got to wait a couple more centuries to get one of those. Of
2: course, yeah. I mean, that goes without what saying. But I, at the same time, these things in history are, are interesting because... You wonder what could have been. Like what if Francis had been a little more understanding or had tried to tried to get to know the Dutch rather than trying to manipulate them and try to change the Dutch character insofar as he wanted to be an absolute monarch rather than being a constitutional monarch, even though this republic Yeah. I mean, he didn't want to be a figurehead, he wanted to be like the ruler of the Dutch. So anything less wasn't good enough for him. I'm an idiot. I know, but <laughs> can you imagine though, if he had been more accommodating to the Dutch demands, what might have been um, an allied
3: French Netherlands? Yeah. Oh, that would have changed a lot of like that frontage onto Germany mm. and the wars that the first and yeah. second world war, the the war against uh, the unification of Germany would have mm. been different. Yeah. That. That is an interesting point. Oh, that is absolutely. Not only
2: not only that, but think of the fact that it was it say say you're the French king and your brother owns the Netherlands. Eventually the Netherlands could theoretically pass just, to your son. Yeah,
3: just annexed straight into yeah, France. Yeah, annexed
2: straight into France. And that had been happening throughout history, which we saw Mary of Burgundy and um, once she died, her son um, who went on to become Philip the I of Spain, etc. I mean, throughout history, the Dutch had been annexed and brought into the fold of different kingdoms. That's why it was owned by Spain. So that it, whether it would have passed to France or not, I think if Francis had been more accommodating, it would have passed perhaps without issue. And we wouldn't even be talking about the Dutch becoming as independent or as important as they were throughout history talking
3: about a a greater french
2: empire exactly yeah i mean imagine what france could have done might
3: be speaking in french (laughs) i mean highly unlikely yeah
2: imagine the french military engine supercharged by the dutch financial power like what could that what could that have done i mean look at what the spanish did with the dutch support behind them they went on to create the greatest empire the world had ever seen Uh, up to that point. up to that point (laughs) yeah (laughs) And, and imagine what the imagine what the French could have done. I mean, it's hugely it. Hu- this is these are the questions in history. I mean, I was asking myself these questions as well, but even beforehand. What if Mary Burgundy had married someone else? What if she'd married an Italian guy
3: instead? What if she'd married an Ottoman guy? Oh, well, if he married an Italian, then maybe Venice and the Netherlands. Could oh, be- yeah. Oh, that- oh, nice <laughs> linkage.
2: Yeah. Oh, well, like, what if... Oh, this would have been, like, the greatest metaphor ever if, like, Mary Burgundy had
3: married, like, the, the, the leader of Venice, of Venice somehow. yeah. Oh, and they unified. And they unified Venice with the Netherlands. Yeah. And they became the super... Trading nations in the world.
2: They wouldn't even have to do anything. You could just they buy would. Europe. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Great
2: questions like this. Obviously, they bring us on massive tangents, but they're hugely yeah. interesting yeah, as, as what ifs
3: in history. And we're not a what if podcast, but it is. It's still really Yeah,
2: really of course. Yeah. So, to the question now of transferring sovereignty, what do you think William of Orange hoped to achieve then by turning to England? ...instead of France, once Francis didn't work out. Well,
3: at that time, England was a uh, Protestant nation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, were the French Catholic at that time? The French, now, at
2: this time, the French are an interesting story... ...because the French wars of religion had been going on for years... ...which basically meant the Protestant French and the Catholic French... ...all had claimants to the throne. Once the last Catholic era, France, died... ...and there was no Catholic heirs left... All that was left was Protestant heirs. One significant one, who I can't remember his name, wanted to be the king of France. But France wasn't Protestant Catholic like Germany was Protestant Catholic. I mean, there wasn't a Protestant north and a Catholic south. There was just Protestant enclaves throughout the country, but it was majorly Catholic. So this was like a complete no way to the French populace that they were going to have a Protestant mm. king. And yet there was... Protestant nobles within France who wanted this to happen. So the French wars of religion went on then for years and years and basically tore France apart for so many years. And it meant that while France was tearing itself apart at the seams, Spain was able to overtake it and basically subject it to major invasions and basically disrespected sovereignty completely. I mean, you had to get get through France to get through the Mediterranean, overland at least, which is what Spain had to do countless times for its possessions in Italy. And significantly as well, during various wars in Italy, when the Habsburgs owned that territory, they were mostly fighting against France. And to do that, they had to cross through French territory. France became like pretty much a non-entity so long as it was being torn apart inside. And that ha- that continued until the Bourbon dynasty established itself firmly, which it wouldn't do for another few years. Mm. I mean, not until the Thirty Years' War was France really seen as the power we know it as, or think of it as in medieval Europe. Protestant England. Yes. <laughs> I know. I got massively distracted there. <laughs> no,
3: no, but it's good. We got we got France out
2: of the way now. Yeah, we don't have to go back. yeah. I mean that that's why France wasn't considered anymore. Not only because France is in blue. It's blue-ish.
3: interesting that uh Villangot Orange would consider uh a French monarch in mm. an illegitimate position, I mean not that it's illegitimate, he's still an heir, but he's yeah. not. he's not in a in control of a country, you know? yeah, but um,
2: you have your it, like within the wars French wars of religion just to, just to finish on this note with that, you are always going to have heirs within that war that you're going to be thinking, okay, that guy's going to win, so let's say that his brother is our king, so that in the future when he does win will come out on top Uh, with the best benefits kind of thing. So even though the French wars of religion were still ongoing, they were kind of winding down at this stage, Mm. but not to the extent that France had established itself as the European power that it would become. So Protestant England. So Protestant England for Philip II of Spain certainly was becoming more and more of a thorn in the side. France, along with Protestant England, had completely raided Spain's overseas possessions mm. in the Americas. Piracy was a huge issue at this stage for Philip, especially because Philip was so engaged with the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, it had become more and more of a problem for Spanish commerce. And in Philip's mind, at least, in a lot of the English historical records and other such Spanish documents, England was a major source of this piracy, especially once this undeclared war between Spain and England really began in earnest in 1585. Mm. So Protestant England was appealing as an option to William of Orange because Protestant England held many things in common with the Netherlands. It certainly wasn't as liberal a country or really as democratic a country as the Netherlands were because obviously it wasn't a republic with a states general, etc. But it did have parliamentary democracy, at least to an extent, because the kings of England and the queens of England, they had to appeal to parliament to raise taxes, and that was a huge issue. By comparison, the kings of France could raise their own taxes. They were absolute monarchs. Now, absolutism wasn't necessarily a big stumbling block for the Dutch because, as we saw, they had tried to bring Francis in to rule over them. Well, that didn't really pan out, as we also saw. It was far easier for William of Orange to justify and convince the Dutch populace that Elizabeth was a better fit as a foreign sovereign to rule over them rather than the French kings. I mean how do you reconcile that idea that we're going to bring a foreign monarch in to protect us? How are we going to bring a foreign protector in? Well, let's just say this foreign protector is very similar to us in their views and in the way that they do things. I mean, it's far easier to do it in that way than it is to bring in someone who is basically a dictator, but is also a king.
3: It might have worked to uh, Ireland's advantage to have just declared themselves... uh uh under the protectorate of Spain and seen what the uh English would have done because I don't think the English could have really have like if the, we just stopped paying their taxes and started collecting and giving it to the Spanish and the Spanish start moving troops in every now and then and mm-hmm. uh assembling an Irish guard you know yeah. I know obviously at that time it was considered we are probably cheating to just go in and take it. I and mean, <laughs> should probably go and capture all the cities and fight mm. all the battles. But it, it might have worked out a little bit better than trying these damned rebellions.
2: Yeah. Well, we're going to see... Like, I will be covering the Irish Nine Years' War at some stage in the near future. And we'll see then the Spanish contribution to that war. Which ended up failing on a miserable scale... But as as does every kind of foreign intervention in Ireland. Yeah, so. <laughs> it is, even though it failed, it is a good example of the kind of tit-for-tat interventionist policies that the two kingdoms had. Spain and England were both very much in each other's Way at this stage In so That's many true, levels
3: yeah Because the English Were getting in the way Of the pacification Of the Netherlands yeah. By giving mm-hmm. the Netherlands Legitimacy Of course To have its own rule Yeah And then <laughs> the, the Spanish thought Well we'll get you back With Ireland mm. And tried to give The Irish legitimacy yeah. To rule
2: But you see By the time Spain Tried to do that It was already too late For the Spanish mm. I mean by the time They tried to do that The Armada had already failed And Spain had completely Depressed itself On the world stage So because of that, it wasn't nearly as effective or as symbolic as what Elizabeth did when she intervened in the Netherlands. It's still a good example of the kind of tit-for-tat war that the two countries had in this period. We did leave the episode in 1585 just when the English and Elizabeth were really considering the possibility of properly investing real resources in the Dutch Revolt. And that's why it's so significant, and I think that's why I had to leave it there, because if I went any further, I'd have to cover so much more detail. I mean, I even mentioned the Treaty of Nonsuch, which was a very significant treaty, because it signified the point when the English were really considering the Dutch as a legitimate, not just portion of Europe to get involved in and invest heavy resources in, but also a place where they could invest in for the future and for future security. I mean, the Dutch were not going to be a heavy burden and they were not going to be a security risk in the future as I covered in in that book that I quoted just at the very end of the episode. They were going to be a place that the English could really make some money off and could really... Secure their place in Europe, yeah, for the well, future.
3: I mean, the Dutch proved themselves well able to defend themselves multiple times. Oh, absolutely! And if you want a solid base to ally yourself with, yeah, the Dutch are ideal for that.
2: Oh, yeah, of course. And for the next few hundred years, the Dutch and the English will be solid allies, based on not just Protestant religious ideas, but also liberal democratic principles. The naval
3: superiority as well, yeah, the naval sure. trade that that the Dutch embarked on, which was emphasised by the the British use of those ports, and then uh, the spread of the English colonies. It you know, it it worked so well for both of those nations. Mm. Out of interest, uh, German principalities, what are they doing? Why, or do they even exist as principalities? Are they just? Um, a part of the greater German uh, Holy Roman German Holy German Holy Roman German Empire Holy German Roman Empire German Roman Ah Hel- oh, Dang it <laughs> Holy Roman Empire There we go You <laughs> found it
2: at last Okay Yeah Yeah The Funny Thing Voltaire Said The Funny Thing About The Holy Roman Empire Is That It's Not Holy It's Not Roman And It's Not An Empire Like That's That's What's So Funny About It It's A German Collection Of States ruled over by... A Spanish king. Yeah. For a long time it was. And in many senses it wasn't even ruled over by him. They pledged loyalty to him but only for the sake of financial and security convenience. Hmm. There was no real sense that we are an empire united as one at all. Because yeah. especially with the Reformation when the question of religion really began to divide oh, the states.
3: They, they all squabbled with each exactly, other. Exactly.
2: And they had their own foreign policy which, is, which manifests itself in the way they treated the Dutch during this time. Yeah. They, a lot of them, even harbored Calvinist refugees who fled from the Netherlands once they lost key, ba- once the Calvinists lost key battles against the mm-hmm. Spanish early on in the revolt in the fifteen, late fifteen sixties. So, it's it's very hard to call what we now know as Germany as Germany because you really get confused if you yeah. try to. Well, I
3: was I was talking about the principalities. Oh, okay, that's what yeah. They
2: are. yeah. Uh, how was your little Prussia doing at the time? Well, Prussia at this stage was barely even an idea. I mean, it hadn't even it hadn't even emerged. It wouldn't be until seventeen hundred really that it yeah, would emerge it, as its it, own thing. It's made
3: up of four provinces. It was yeah, like, three had, or
2: so. four at this stage. Yeah, I mean Brandenburg is one I know of, but there would be other ones as well. I mean, it, it certainly wasn't enough of an issue at this stage to make the uh, the Habsburg Emperor living in Vienna think, um, "Oh no, I worry for what, the future." What
3: does um Russia was orthodox, yes. wasn't it? Russia what, was. What were they up to? Were, was this Reformation just a European thing and not a... Uh, pretty a much, thing? yeah.
2: I mean, the thing with the Reformation is it spread from the Netherlands and from Germany all the way across to Scandinavia and to England and, of course, Britain, who then brought it to America. I mean, it wasn't really an Eastern European thing. It was it, because in Eastern Europe... Eastern Europe was already dominated by Orthodox Christianity, which had conflicted for a long time with Catholic Christianity, but certainly not to the extent that Protestant and Catholic would conflict in the future. Mm.
3: There, there were there were other little kingdoms before the unification of Spain. Oh, Castile
2: and Aragon. Yeah, yeah. those guys.
3: What happened to them? Did they just... Well, you see, did that's they just uh, eventually filter out their. Yeah, I see that. Peace? That's
2: yeah. It's funny because we're actually talking about the background at the end of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Castile and Aragon disappear for the same reason most other things disappear in Europe, and that's marriage. Somebody
3: dies and marriage. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon marry, and after that happens, their descendants become rulers of Spain. Their children went on to marry the children of Mary of Burgundy and Maximilian of Austria, who happened to be a Habsburg. So the children of Mary of Burgundy and Maximilian of Austria were Habsburgs. And then they married into the Castilian and Aragonese thrones, which soon became Spanish thrones. um, And then they became Habsburg. So... I think we've covered all that we can cover, to be honest. TBH? TBH, yeah. So, on that note, I think we can finally get out of here. I take it out. Okay,
3: go ahead. My name is Sean. And my name is Zach. And you have been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! <laughs>
2: On the podcast and my guest as always is Sean. Say hello Sean. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of
3: creepy. You said say hello. I right? didn't I say, like, hello. I didn't say did. like, play it back right now. I didn't say try to seduce our, our <laughs> listeners. I was only repeating to the letter what you said. Okay. Go on, pause it and play it back. All right. You.